Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. I wonder, do you ever give much thought to what's gonna happen at the end of your life? I'm not trying to be morbid. I mean, happy Sunday, everybody. I'm glad you joined us. Uh, but for so many of us, as we get older and as we have kids and maybe you have grandkids, we start to think about our legacy. You know, over the last couple of years, I've done probably more than my fair share of funerals. And it makes me think about the legacy that I'm leaving behind. What, what will we leave behind for the next generations? And, and while much of our legacy is built through our actions, some of it is built through our words as well. And that got me thinking about famous last words. Uh, as you probably know that a lot of famous people have some last words that have become pretty famous too. Uh, maybe you know these, some of these have had a big impact on the world. For instance, uh, the famous futurist, Notre Dame, his last words were, tomorrow at sunrise, I will no longer be here. He was right. Another great prediction by him. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the great artist da Vinci was very modest on his deathbed. His last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality which it should have. I mean, can you imagine that coming from a painter with great works like the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper? The second US president, John Adams, died on July the 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years to the day after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. And you may know that he had a lifelong rivalry with the third president, Thomas Jefferson. And on the day that he died, Adams woke up and said, alas, Thomas Jefferson survives. And what he didn't know is that Thomas Jefferson had died just a few hours earlier the same day. But maybe my favorite is comedian and actor Charlie Chaplin. He was being read his last rites by a priest who ended with, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. And Chaplin replied, why not? It's his anyway. You know, but I think no last words have had the lasting impact and have changed the world quite like the last words of Jesus. And we find them in Acts chapter one. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you might open them there. We're gonna look at Acts chapter one. This year, we've been reading all the way through the Bible in a series that we've called Planted. Now, just as a reminder, this comes from Psalm chapter one, where the psalmist says that the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates it on it day and night, that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. And that is our hope. You know, that is our desire that as individuals and as a church collectively, that this year we are learning to delight in the law of the Lord. And if we do that, our hope is that we will prosper, that we will be able to withstand the drought and the storms and the winds of life. And so as Jerry said, over the past five weeks, we've looked at the four gospels, the four accounts of Jesus's life. And all four of those accounts record the end of Jesus's life on earth in much the same way. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his followers. He's turned over to the ruling authorities to be tried. He is beaten, he's mocked, he's spat upon, and eventually he's nailed to a cross where he's left to die. He's buried in a tomb on Friday evening and he lays there all through Friday night through Saturday in a tomb that's guarded by Roman soldiers to make sure that his followers didn't try to steal his body. And then on Sunday morning, some of his followers go to his tomb to embalm the body and it's gone. He's not there. And slowly they start to realize what has happened, that the death and resurrection that Jesus had predicted while he was alive wasn't just a story. It was something that actually happened. And what we see as we start the book of Acts is that 
this one act has sparked a change in the disciples. In fact, we see this most clearly, I think, in Acts chapter four, when Peter, you remember Peter, right? He's the one that Jesus predicted would deny him three times uh, while he was on trial. And while Jesus was on trial, Peter, Peter denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. You remember that guy, that Peter? Well, in Acts chapter four, that Peter is standing up in front of a large crowd, including many of the religious leaders who killed Jesus. And he is telling them there's only one way to be saved. Salvation has come uh, through Jesus alone. And the rulers and elders come to this conclusion. I love this phrase in Acts 4.13 says this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. We'll get there. I promise we'll get to that. But first, I wanna talk about those famous last words of Jesus. Because when I was finding my way back to God, there was something I wondered, and maybe you do too. Like, how do we even know anything about Jesus? Why do we know so much about this Jewish carpenter from a backwoods town in Palestine, a distant outpost of the Roman empire? Like we know more about Jesus than we know about any of the Roman emperors, including Julius Caesar. And he had a play written uh, about him, you know? Uh, Well, I think we have to give some credit to the eyewitnesses, the men and women who saw these events unfold. See, we can sometimes think of the stories we see in the Bible as having been handed down through oral tradition from generation to generation until they're finally written down. But that's not true with these books we're reading now. You know, we've, we touched on this for the last two weeks that Luke, the writer of the gospel we know as the gospel of Luke, he interviewed eyewitnesses in hopes of capturing what he calls an orderly account of what happened around the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That the people who provided these stories then didn't hear about them. They actually experienced them. They, they were there. They saw Jesus walking around alive after they saw him dead and it influenced how they lived and where they went and what they did. Well, the book of Acts that we're reading right now, it's basically like Luke part two. Uh, It's actually a second part of a unified two work volume that you might call Luke Acts. And he wrote this for his friend as he was trying to capture an orderly account of what happened, his friend Theophilus. Here's how he starts volume two. This is Acts 1.1. Luke writes this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You can almost hear Luke, the physician, who by the way, as a physician, he should know when someone's dead, right? You can almost hear Luke, the physician saying to his friend, Theophilus, look, I know this is crazy. And I didn't know if I could believe it either, but I've talked to all these people and they saw him and he proved time and time again that he was alive. And then Luke goes on to capture these last words of Jesus. These words I wanna focus on. We can find them in Acts 1, chapter, uh, chapter one, verse eight. It says this, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, one thing to note about this, 
Jesus is the only person to my knowledge, I think the only person in history to give his last words after he died, <laughs> okay? Uh, most people, most of us will only get to give our last words up until the moment we die. But Jesus died, was resurrected, appeared to his disciples and others on a number of occasions and then gave his last words. So let's look at them again. Acts 1.8, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now look at this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, Jesus had promised them that this Holy Spirit, one he sometimes called the advocate, uh, would, would come. But they probably didn't understand what that meant, that this other person was coming in and was going to be better. Jesus said it would be an advantage to you. And then he says, you will be my witnesses. Now, a witness is someone who says, here's what happened. Okay, I saw it. I was there. Here's what I know happened. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. This is the city where they were living. And in all Judea, and Judea would have been the surrounding area, if you think about it, like kind of like a state, okay? And in Samaria, now Samaria was the next region to the north and to the ends of the earth. In other words, and everywhere else, you're gonna be my witnesses there. And then right after that happened, Jesus is taken up to heaven right before their eyes. Again, this happened in front of many witnesses, witnesses to whom Luke spoke before he wrote this down. And the whole rest of the book of Acts is all about Jesus's followers fulfilling or obeying these last words of Jesus, being overcome by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two and receiving that power that Jesus had promised. Then heading out first in Jerusalem and then in the surrounding areas, telling the story of what Jesus taught and what he accomplished during his life on earth and how he died and how he was raised again. And for these witnesses, the news of Jesus's death and resurrection wasn't just a teaching passed down to them from a past generation. This happened on their watch in their backyard. Many were eyewitnesses. They saw it happen. They watched him die the painful death on the cross they spent time with him following his resurrection. Many of the men and women on the Mount of Olives when he ascended into heaven were there. And because of what they saw, because of the Holy Spirit living in them, they were prepared to go out into the surrounding towns and villages and cities and spread the good news of Jesus. And in Acts chapter two, we see Peter, one of those eyewitnesses, preaching uh, one of the very first sermons, one of the very first messages to these witnesses and 3000 people surrender their lives to Christ. 3000 people and the church was born and it was born as a movement. It, there were no buildings, there were no programs, there were no campuses, no youth groups, but that didn't stop them. They were so on fire for the message of Jesus that they go out through Jerusalem and they, they meet together every day and they gather in the temple courts and they start telling the story over and over of what Jesus has done and they're healing people and they're helping people and they're gaining momentum and the very same people that put Jesus to death take notice. And so by Acts chapter four, Peter and John are in jail. You know, they'd been speaking to a large crowd of people near the temple and they were being so bold as to say, you know, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so they were arrested the next day and they appeared before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was like the high court. You didn't mess with these guys. Uh, they were very important. They were in power. They, it was their job to keep order in Jerusalem. And Peter and John come before them. And uh, when they're there standing before the high court, somebody from the high court shouts out, why are you saying these things? What gives you the right to talk like this? 
And so Peter does what every good preacher would do in that situation with a large crowd gathered around. He passes the offering plate. No, he doesn't pass the offering plate. He doesn't do that. Uh, Peter preaches a sermon. He launches into a sermon and he tells the story of Jesus and his life, death and resurrection. And then he says this thing that, you know, just has to bug the heck out of these guys that just killed Jesus. He says this, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, that's kind of narrow, isn't it? After all, aren't we all children of God? I mean, isn't it words like that that cause so many people to stand in opposition to Christianity? But this is what Peter knew and believed. After all, he was a witness, right? He had walked with Jesus. He saw what Jesus was capable of with his own eyes. And you know what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've seen it too. You've watched him change your life. You've watched him change your heart. You've watched him change your patience, change your language, change your priorities. You know in your heart of hearts that all religions aren't the same, that not all faiths worship the same God. And while in today's world, that seems really narrow-minded and not at all politically correct, you know it to be true because you've experienced it in your own life. And so today, many people want us as Christians to tone down that message, but we won't do it. We won't compromise in that. It's that, that's the truth. I believe at Genesis, we believe that salvation is found in no one else, that only Jesus lived a sinless life. Only Jesus died an atoning death to pay for our sin. Only Jesus was raised from the dead by his heavenly father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection and gave them this instruction and said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter had that courage to speak his heart. And while the men of the Sanhedrin didn't believe his message, they couldn't change his mind. And as they saw this movement starting to grow, they didn't want any trouble with the people. So they warned them to stop and let him go. Now, what happened next is fascinating. And it's, it's where I wanna spend the rest of our time this morning. The disciples went away and prayed. And, and that's not at all unusual. They would have prayed together daily, but I want you to see what they prayed. We can see this in Acts 4.29. Look at this. They prayed this. Now, Lord, consider their threats, that, right? The Sanhedrin had threatened them. Don't speak in that name. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. <laughs> Stop right there, okay? Boldness? Really? They're asking for boldness. I mean, isn't boldness what got them into this mess in the first place? Isn't boldness what landed Peter and John in jail? I think they've got a handle on the boldness part, don't you? But I wonder, have you ever prayed for boldness? That's what they did. They, they've had all these threats and it's only gonna get worse, but they're not gonna tone it down. When they're faced with these threats and opposition, these, these Christians, this church prayed for great boldness. Now, I didn't say weirdness, okay? There's a difference. I, I don't believe we as Christians are called to be weird or insensitive idiots. I and mean, we could talk a whole lot about how Christians and churches in a bunch of ways have done great harm to the message of Jesus in the name of something like boldness. But I'm talking about boldness as in courage, 
Boldness as in eagerness. Boldness as in passion. Boldness as in Jesus is coming back and it might be today and it might be tomorrow and it might be next week. We don't know. But do you know why the message of Jesus made it all the way to 2021? Because of boldness. It's because these men and women, these eyewitnesses, these first century Christians prayed for boldness and God honored that prayer. And the church grew. I mean, just think about this. Jesus had 12 apostles, 12 leaders in his ministry. One of those didn't work out so well. We know that story. So maybe 11 men around him as leaders. After his resurrection, there was a gathering of about 120. On the day of Pentecost, we just saw that 3000 more were added to the church that day. And by 70 AD, many Christians had to flee Jerusalem because the persecution was so rampant, which pushed it out beyond into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By 325 AD, so about 300 years, after the death of Jesus, Emperor Constantine had convened the Council of Nicaea in order to gain unity among Christians. And by the fifth century, okay, 400 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman empire. The church was on fire and it was spreading because of boldness. But then something happened. Over time, something happened in the church. The church got organized. The church got buildings and what started as a movement around a message became more of a hierarchy. People with wrong priorities started to take control and people in the church started leveraging religion in order to gain power and control over people. And in a matter of a few hundred years, this very outward focused movement that was created to spread the message of Jesus to the entire world became very inward focused. Every church, Every church goes through seasons as they age. That's only natural. But I heard one, some, someone say once that the gravitational pull of every church is to turn back inward, to forget about the thousands upon thousands of people out there in the harvest field who desperately need to know the love and grace and forgiveness of God and to focus on the few dozen or the few hundred here who want things done the way we like them. And if church is not intentional, it will be very natural for them, for us to take our eyes off the harvest field and start staring at our navels. You know, I didn't grow up in church, but for just a couple years in middle school, I found a church I absolutely loved. It was so weird for me because I wasn't a Christian. Uh, uh, spirituality, Christ was not a priority in my household, but my mom, who I got to spend weekends with, my mom would take us to this one church on weekends. And I got super involved in the student ministry and I was baptized there and my mom got involved and she started uh, diving into ministry there. And she met a man who was the brother of the lead pastor and she eventually married him. Now, I didn't live with my mom at the time, so I don't know exactly how this story went down, but as I understand, uh, he got pretty abusive with my mom, her husband, the brother of the lead pastor, and she eventually got fed up and left him and filed for divorce. And because of that, the lead pastor asked, asked her, and by extension, me, to never come back to that church again. You know, the church was more interested in protecting what it had than to try to enter into the brokenness and I swore I'd never come back to church. Fortunately, God knew better. But I know many of you have stories like that. Maybe you went to a church where there was a fight and that fight caused a split and you didn't know who to go with and it, it really damaged your view of the church and of Christ. 
Maybe you had a problem and the church didn't know how to deal with it. Maybe there was some misconduct or hypocrisy or something else that drove you away. And it's only by God's grace that you're back watching this today. Can I tell you that many, many people will never come back? Whether it's because of hurt from prior church or abuse from a spiritual leader or a parent who tried to shove religion down their throat. Even in Indiana, in the heart of the Bible Belt, there are many, many people, some of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, students that you go to school with, who will never, ever, ever on their own step foot into a church or watch it online. You have to go get them. How do we do that? We have to be bold. We need to be praying for boldness, but we can tend to shy away from that, especially when we see the story of these men in scripture who were so courageous, even disregarding their lives to go spread the news of Jesus. I mean, how can we live like that? How can we even hope to measure up to something like the stories we read in scripture? And so as I've thought about it this week, I thought about how to challenge you. There were a couple things that I knew that we could do. First, I could tell you some stories of people who live in other parts of the world, you know, places where it isn't safe to be a Christian. I could talk about friends of mine who smuggled Bibles into a communist country in the trunk of their cars and how they would sit outside at customs and, and be praying over and over again that the people inspecting their car wouldn't open the trunk or wouldn't move a certain box. Or I could tell you about other friends who illegally cross international borders to build hospitals in countries whose governments don't care enough about their people to even try to heal the sick. And these brave men and women are heroes and what they are doing is fantastic and it counts. <laughs> but honestly, those kind of stories just seem so far away that I don't know if they really reach our hearts. So instead, here's what I thought I'd do. I thought we could look at some boldness baby steps, okay? Uh, what can we do here and now in our context, in our world, with our lives, that is bold? Now, if you hear these and you immediately think, well, gosh, that's nothing compared to what the apostles did. You're right, first of all, you're right. But let's be real. Most of us have a ton of work to do in the area of boldness. And we've got to start somewhere because when it comes to boldness, most of us are still babies. So let's take some boldness baby steps. Maybe write these down if you're taking notes today. I got three boldness baby steps for you. Number one is this. Boldness is saying something when it would be easier to say nothing. Now, I wanna make sure that you get this straight because I know some of you are very, very bold when it comes to saying things, okay? I know this because we're Facebook friends. And, uh, but those aren't the things I'm talking about. Quite honestly, I know that for many of my friends right here at Genesis, I know far more about who you voted for than what Jesus has done in your life. For many of you, I, I have a very clear picture of what you believe about masks, but I have no idea what you believe about prayer. I know whether or not you've had a vaccine, but I have no idea whether or not you've been baptized. Look, I'm not trying to tell you that the thing that you're so passionate about isn't important. I know some of you are really involved in local government and ca local causes and global causes and social uh, issues. I am too. And and I'm not trying to Jesus juke anyone, but I do wish we were as bold about proclaiming our faith as we are about proclaiming our politics, for instance. I do wish that we collectively as a church, I wish we were known more for what we're for than what we're against. 
But when I talk about saying something when it would be easier to say nothing, I mean sharing your faith, even the story of what Jesus has done for you with someone who desperately needs to hear it, even if you don't think they'd be open to it. I remember several years ago, my wife and I attended a block party in our neighborhood. And in that particular neighborhood at the time, block party, it basically meant a kegger, okay? Now, I, I don't have any issues with people who drink alcohol. Um, I don't have a problem with people who drink in moderation. It's just not a hobby of mine, okay? You understand? Um, I know some people who anytime they get together with friends and alcohol, it turns into a frat party all over again. I just wanna be like, dude, you are in your 40s. You need to just start living like a 40-year-old. Grow up. But we're at this party and um, my wife is there, my, my, my wonderful, sweet wife, and all the women are gathered together and they're all talking about their kids in school. And... Uh, one of the women asked, well, Benita, how are your kids doing in school? And quite honestly, it had been a pretty tough start to the year for our girls. And so she went on to tell about a struggle we were having, but how God had been speaking to her in that struggle and how he was teaching her how to deal with that. And, and she told this story and it, it took a couple of minutes to tell about God's faithfulness, even in our ch child's dealings with this school teacher. And when she finished, there was complete silence for about five seconds until someone said, okay, who needs another margarita? You know, who's like, just took the air out of my wife's sails. It's not always gonna go like you plan it. That's why it takes boldness. Being bold is saying something when it's easier to say nothing. We should all have a message that we're ready to share when, with anyone who asks. Here's my second boldness baby step. It's this, boldness is praying with someone instead of saying you'll pray for them. Now I had someone challenge me with this one time. Uh, they said, hey, next time somebody asks you to pray for them, why don't you pray with them? And so the very next day, wouldn't you know it, I got a call from a friend. This was before I came on staff at Genesis. I was working in the corporate world and a friend of mine who owned a company uh, down in Fishers, he, he was on his way to work and I was on my way to work and he called me and he said, hey, Steve, I wanted to ask you to pray for me today. I've got a big meeting with a potential client. And so I said, okay, let's pray right now. I, I, don't, I didn't usually do this, but somebody had just challenged me on this. And so we did that. I prayed out loud with him on the phone as I was driving to work, he was driving to work. I left my eyes open, obviously, um, but I prayed with him. And he called me up later that day. And here's what he said to me. He said, that whole time I was in that meeting, I just kept thinking about your prayers and how they carried me through that. Oh, that was so good. It was so meaningful to me. And it wasn't because of me. It was because the spirit prompted me in that moment to pray with him right there. When you, when you pray for someone, you get the opportunity to stand between that person and God. I just wanna challenge you this week, pray for someone. When they ask you to pray for them, stop and pray for them on the spot. I mean, what if the next time somebody's pouring out their heart to you, what would happen if you stop and pray for them right then and there? You might be surprised. You have no idea what your humility and your prayers might mean for that person. So that's boldness, friends. That's boldness baby step number two. Boldness baby step number three is this. Boldness is taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. What would it look like to intentionally place yourself in situations where you know there will be non-Christians present then pray to God for an opportunity, uh, for God to send an opportunity your way. A few years, a few years ago, I was uh, running a race. I was running a race uh, out of town with some friends of mine. I made it uh, my business to travel with these guys as often as I could. None of them were Christians. 
And I wanted to go with them to these races, these, uh, these destination races, so that we could have some quality windshield time. And a friend of mine, no, friend of a friend of mine who I hadn't really spent any time with, I didn't really know, had left some things at home and needed to run to the store the night before the race. And all of my friends were, well, they were getting ready for their frat party. <laughs> and so uh, he said, does anybody want to go to the store with me? And I just raised my hand and said, I'll go. I didn't really know this guy, didn't know much about him. But as we drove, I started to ask him some questions. I asked him about his work. I asked him about his family. And something was triggered in him. And he started to tell me this long story about how he and his wife struggled for five years with infertility and they didn't really understand uh, why this would happen to them. And they got mad at God and, and how they, that after five years of fighting through this, they finally had a baby boy and he got out his phone and he showed me a picture. And with tears in his eyes, as we pulled into the Walmart parking lot, this guy was ugly crying before he walked into the Walmart. So I had this opportunity and I, I told him, how thankful I was that he shared his story with me and how I know that must've been really difficult to share. And I told him that his son was a gift from God, that I believe that with all my heart, that God gifted him with his son and that, that uh, there was a God that loved him. And in fact, that when my, my friend's friend, when he looked at his son, I said, that's how God looks at you, his beloved son. And he started crying even more. Now, did he come to Christ in that moment? No. And uh, you know, to this day, I, I don't think he even has yet but we have no way of knowing how our words or actions will affect someone down the road. And by God's grace, other people are investing in him too and looking for opportunities to talk to him about God. It's time we pray for boldness. It's time to take steps outside our comfort zones and find our ways into situations and conversations where we're desperate for God to show up and to work on our behalf. Look at it this way. If you're watching this today and you're a Christian, aren't you glad someone said something to you? I mean, aren't you glad somebody prayed for you or somebody invited you to church? Why did that happen? Because someone was bold. Now, if you're watching this today and you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking, see this boldness. This is exactly what drives me crazy about Christians. Like, why don't you just shut up about your faith? Why don't you just keep it to yourself? Well, I've got good news for you. Most of them do. You know, there may be neighbors or coworkers that you have that are followers of Jesus and you don't know about it because they are secret Christians. You know what? We don't have time for secret Christians. Honestly, it doesn't fit with what Jesus has called us to do. It doesn't fit with what he wants out of his followers in his church. That's why at Genesis, I am so grateful that you are committed and ready to take whatever steps are necessary to help people find their way back to God. And if you're struggling to find the boldness, just remember those last words of Jesus. I'm gonna read them for you one more time. And as I do, I just want you to close your eyes and close your eyes and just imagine you're there on that mountain. You're on the Mount of Olives meeting face to face with Jesus. And you know, this is the last thing he's ever going to say to you. And he looks you in the eye and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you hear those words, do they mean anything to you? Does it stir something up inside of you? Do the last words of Jesus affect your life in any way? The fact that you receive power, 
Power from the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you. Does that mean anything for you? That you will be his witnesses. Does that mean anything for you? That you're gonna take what you've seen Jesus do in your life and you're gonna go tell somebody about it? Is, is your life any different because Jesus gave you that command? Let's pray together as we close today. And as we pray, I wanna pray that both you and I would have great boldness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you gave us this command, that you've promised us that we would get the power of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And then you sent us out to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, including right here in Indiana. Lord, thank you for that command. <laughs> but it's a little intimidating, quite honestly. Uh, those of us who are babies when it comes to boldness, we need boldness. God, I'm praying today for me, for our church, that you would give us great boldness to share your message, to share your words with people around us, even this week. Lord, would you help us to say something when it would be easier to say nothing? Would you help us in the moment to pray for someone, to pray with someone right there in that moment instead of saying that we'll pray for them later? And God, would you help us to take advantage of every opportunity that you send our way? I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give each one of us an opportunity this week to share your message of love and grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And when we do, we will give you all the praise and all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.